This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hey guys, and welcome to this week's episode of Gen Z Money. This episode today is part of our mini-series on buying your first home. And for this episode, I'm speaking to Emily Wallace, who is a buyer's advocate and also the co-host of the podcast, My Millennial Property. I have to say, this is definitely one of my favorite Gen Z episodes so far. Emily gives us so much really, really good information about looking for the perfect home. So today we're going to be talking about all of the things that you should look for in your first home. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Let's get right into it. Hi, Emily. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. No worries. I'm very excited to be on board today. Could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do for work? Certainly. So, my name is Emily Wallace and I'm a buyer's advocate, also known as a buyer's agent. It's the same thing. I just choose to say advocate. So, uh, in a nutshell, I purchase first and family homes for people who are looking to buy property. So, I'm their voice and their person to lean on throughout the whole process. And that is my job that I do for a living. It's my business and I absolutely love it. And how long have you been doing that for? So, I've had the business just over two and a half years now. Um, And I mean, I guess an advocate is a growing space. So, I'm really lucky to be part of that movement. Um, But yeah, two and a half years I've been doing it. Amazing. And for a first home buyer who really wants to make sure that they're getting um, the property that's right for them, what role does a buyer's agent usually play in that relationship? And are you often helping first home buyers? Yes, definitely. A large portion of the people I help are first home buyers. And that's varying. You know, first home buyer could mean someone who's saved every penny since they you know, started getting pocket money and they're 21 years old buying their first property. Or it could mean a first home buyer, which is a couple you know, in their mid-30s about to have their second child. It really varies, but certainly um, trying to help them pick the right property for the right reasons and also giving them choice beyond what you can find on realestate.com and domain. Um, so a large part of that being the off-market process as well. Amazing. Because when I think about buying a property, I think there might be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, a bit of a belief out there that property is always a good choice. Every property is a good property. And as long as you're in the property market, you're on the right track. Um, What do you think about that? And how much would you say actually selecting a good location and a good asset in terms of a good property plays into that? Yeah, I mean, it is a common saying just to get into the property market in some way, shape or form. But let's just take, you know, $500,000, for example, that can go a lot of different ways. And there's properties that could be picture perfect, ready to go. And there's other properties that could um, be in a really great location, but need a facelift um, renovation done to them. So, it, uh, location and the quality of the house are two driving factors. And I often find with my buyers that they either lean one way or the other when it's their own home. So either they're a lifestyle person who really wants to be walking distance to everything, or they're really a house proud person who really wants a, a large house that might be a little bit further out. And the house means a lot to them. There's no right or wrong as such, but there certainly is a way that when you compare two properties, one may perform better than another based on what it needs doing to it, based on the location and based on the long-term projected growth of that area as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important thing to consider when you are looking to buy a property. So I'll ask you a few questions just around that. We've had a few people on Instagram ask some questions as well, which is really good. Um, But first of all, what's the best way to get a feel for a suburb, especially if it's a suburb that you haven't lived in before? Definitely. It's a really interesting one. A lot of people that I work with and a lot of buyers are buying in an area they've never lived in before. So first and foremost, I always encourage people, even when they're just looking at pre-approval phase, go out on a Saturday and do a whole lot of back-to-back inspections to get a feel for that market. How many people are turning up to the properties? Stop at a local cafe, you know, for a little half-time break. Go down the local shopping strip and just speak to the locals, you know. Even if you're in a bakery, say, I'm thinking of moving to the area, you know, what can you tell me about it? Uh, another way that I do it a lot because I work a lot uh, across a lot of different suburbs is looking at Facebook groups. So most communities will have a Facebook group of some kind and I just ask if I can join and if it says why are you joining this group to say I'm thinking about moving to the area and look through the posts and understand what that community looks and feels like um, from what they're posting as well. It's a good time effective way to learn a lot. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of doing it, getting actually right into the community and seeing what people are talking about. And another thing I've always wondered is with uh, properties that maybe don't have a community yet. So if we're talking about, um, you see a lot of these house and land packages in their um, areas that are just being developed, you really don't know what that community is going to be like. How do you approach things like that? It's a really tricky one. Um, and it is buying into the unknown in, in many cases with, with that. And some of those estates can be awesome and some of them, if they're very investor heavy, could have a very mixed demographic of the style of person who's buying. So if you're one Mm. of those people thinking about buying a house and land in an estate, your best resources would be the sales offices to understand, you know, the last 10 purchases, what sort of people were they? Were they first home buyers like me? Uh, Are they investors? Also to look at the bigger scope of plans. So most of the time they'll have a display centre with, you know, the shopping centre and what shops they've secured, the schools, the sports grounds, just to get an idea of what that looks like and what amenities you have access to. But the truth is you won't know the community until the community is established. So you're going off a little bit blind in comparison to an established suburb, but there are some things that, you know, you can have uh, at your hand to be able to help you make a good decision. Those are some really, really good tips. And in general, are there any things that you should look for in these areas that are being developed that would be potentially a good indicator of a good community? So for example, some parks or a school or um, local supermarkets, are there anything there that you tend to look for? Yeah, definitely. Amenities are a big thing and the access from the parcel of land that you're buying to those amenities. Also things like, is there a community house? Is there, are there going to be early learning centres in the area for, you know, young kids? Um, Or is it a sort of place where there's, you know, skate parks and it's a bit more of a teenage sort of demographic and basketball courts and things like that. So they can be some key indicators. But generally speaking, most estates will have some amenities of some sort. It's just a matter of what they actually look like, how big they are and what proximity they are to where you're purchasing in the estate. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing um, that I see a lot of people talking about is obviously when you're comparing a house with an apartment, uh, apartment is generally a lot more affordable. However, a lot of the concern around buying an apartment is that you don't actually own the land. And there's obviously the concern about depreciation of the building as well. So would you say there's any hard and fast rules or anything you should look for when you're comparing buying a house versus buying an apartment for your first home? Great question and something that comes up uh, quite often, you know, apartment versus house. And I think 
really it's about what is the purpose of that purchase. So at that point in time, it's your first home, but are you planning on living in it for 12 months to get the benefits of being a first home and then flipping it to an investment? Or is that actually going to be your home, your stepping stone property for five years and then you're going to sell it and move on to the next thing? I guess the biggest thing it comes down to is really lifestyle because as we know, apartments and houses in the same area have a very different median price. So if it's to do with the fact that I know there's a lot of people I've spoken to recently who have said, you know, Emily, I'm looking to rent a two bedroom apartment, but for the rental repayments, I may as well go and buy one that, you know, I can make Mm -hmm. my own. And that's a very factual statement. So it's trying to work out what is the benefit of owning it, factoring in that, no, there's not a a large land component, um, particularly in one and two bedroom apartments. And you've also Mm -hmm. got to factor in body corporate fees and, you know, unforeseen maintenance that could be generic to the block itself that you're actually also liable for. So they're a little bit more risky, but I think they provide more of a lifestyle as to where those apartments are situated closer to the to the main cities, um, transport and all the rest of it. So there's no right or wrong answer to it. It's just to be aware that apartments do come with a slightly greater risk of the costs ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. I totally get that. So I'm renting uh, my apartment at the moment and it's an inner city apartment. I absolutely love living here. But for me personally, if I were to look to buy, I, I wouldn't buy it just for my own reasons. Um, so I think there's something right out there for everyone just completely depends on what your goals are with most things in life with cars um, with consumer products newer is generally always better what role does new versus um, established properties play into looking for your first home Yeah, it's a really interesting one. A lot of it comes down to personal preference. I actually just took some buyers through some properties. We had five off-market property opportunities during the week and three of those were brand new and two of them were older. And funnily enough, they said, look, we actually don't really want the new ones because we feel like as it is a new product, the wear and tear will be more noticeable on it quite quickly And Mm -hmm. if we did have tenants in it, you know, we think that they could decline really quickly how it looks. And that's a very valid point. On the flip side, the older one, you know, was a little bit less desirable because it needed more work to bring it up to standard um, and probably needed to be factored into their purchase price to allow for that to happen. You know, fresh coat of paint, fresh blinds and carpet. So the old versus new debate, and I know John and I, did a, an episode on this at one point and we sort of concluded that, again, no right or wrong answer, very much personal preference. Um, some people definitely gravitate towards new because they want that modern, new usually equals modern, modern mm-hmm. feel, everything theirs from, from scratch and to really make it their own, whereas other people will sway towards old because not um, saying this is blanket rule, but generally speaking, the footprint is larger than a new build um, that, you know, particularly in the apartment or unit space, they're built larger. So yeah, it's a really interesting one. We come up against this all the time, but it comes back to personal preference and what work you're prepared to put in, if any, um, into a property. Absolutely. And if you are um, willing to put some work into a property and maybe buying a bit of a, a fixer upper, are you usually talking to your clients and encouraging them to consider that as a part of their budget? Yeah, definitely. So some people will come to us and say, look, Emily, we've got up to $750 to spend. Um, but if we found something at $650 that needed a bit of work put into it to make it our own, then that would be our you know collective price point. So um, it's not often that we get an opportunity to show two properties, one that's 
you know, they've got the same footprint but done up versus one that's old and can put your own mark on. I'm actually finding a bit more commonly now people are saying we're not opting for the newly renovated ones because if we're going to do a renovation, we would have done that very differently to how that person, the current owner has designed it. So I'm actually Mm -hmm. seeing a lot more sway towards being open to what we call a facelift renovation, which is basic things such as um, carpets, flooring, blinds and paint and potentially maybe a different, you know, splashback or bench top in the kitchen. Uh, That's becoming a lot more common. Um, And I think, yeah, I'm finding, you know, younger people are open to that once they're educated about it and educated about the cost. That's the biggest unknown is how much will this cost me to get it to the standard that I want Mm -hmm. it. And in the wake of COVID, obviously, that shook up the property market quite a bit. Have you noticed in your experience in, say, the last few months that there is less of an appeal of living close to the city with so many people now working from home? Yeah, I think it's not so much less of an appeal of being close to the city. It's more about the property type that's close to the city. So it's definitely the apartment market, you know, speaking from my experience down here in Melbourne, the market is super red hot right now. Like it's ridiculous, but it's hot in the home buying, as in, I mean, a house or a townhouse buying, not necessarily in the apartment space. The apartment space is the only market I'm seeing things actually sell in their quoted range or their asking price instead of excessively over. So that would indicate maybe it's less desirable to purchase an apartment in the inner city right now for a lot of people. And it would make more sense to either a, go for a higher amount if you can and buy something that's got more space in the same area or B, opt to go further out with the same budget and get you know a house, not an apartment. So yeah, the, the buying styles definitely change as a result of COVID and generally speaking, the apartment market is taking a little bit of a hit in the inner cities because they're not, people aren't jumping up and down, particularly in the one bedroom space. Even one bedroom rentals are really suffering at the moment. Um, no one wants to be alone anymore. They want to be with their family. So yeah, I imagine a lot of people that were locked down during COVID in a little one bedroom apartment must have been feeling the effects of that and wanting to kind of have a garden or be around other people again. Yeah, definitely. There's so many one-bedroom apartments for rent. It's actually insane. So yeah, probably not a great time to be an investor in that market, Um, but it'll even out over time. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And then I have a question from a follower on Instagram and her question was, is it better to buy now for many years? So for example, buying a big house with more bedrooms with the plans of having children, having a family, or just to buy for your current lifestyle and sell later? Oh, good question. So that to me sounds like, do I buy myself and set myself up long-term now or do I buy a stepping stone property that then I go up to the next thing, which is such a common debate. Mm -hmm. Again, no right or wrong answer, but I think if you are someone who wants stability and you're pretty certain on where you want to live long-term, which I don't find many people are, to be honest. This is a bit of an out-of-the-box one. I, I don't know many people that buy something now to live in it for t- 15 to 20 years. The Most of the conversations I have is five to seven years and then our next thing. And I think mm-hmm. that's a generational thing, you know, millennials, all the different generations as well, wanting the next thing and wanting change and being adaptive to change. So mm-hmm. – 
if the right property is there and something you can visualize yourself and you can grow into, it might be you and your partner right now, but you're planning on having two or three kids and you buy a four bedroom home because you can actually afford it right now and you can sit on it for a long time, then why not? I think that's great if you can do that and you've got the mindset to do it. I would say the most common scenario I come across is a stepping stone property, which is we're going to buy this property now in our sort of mid 20s. We're planning on having baby number one here if we are having a baby and then we're probably going to outgrow it by the time that baby's two or three and then we need to upsize. So the capital growth of that property really matters because it's going to impact what we can buy next. So that's a really, really common scenario. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good advice. And just in general, if there's someone out here listening to this episode and they're looking for their first property and maybe they're going to some inspections, but they're not really sure what they should be looking for, what are some physical things around the house or the apartment that they're looking at that you think they should pay special attention to? Definitely. So straight off the bat, I never trust the measurements on the floor plans. So most properties, no, never trust them. Um, Not that they're always incorrect, but I've come across one too many times when they weren't correct. And it was actually a crucial, you know, like a second bedroom was really a study. Uh, Mm. And it's very hard to visualize when they're not furnished. So number one, take a measuring tape and don't be afraid to measure up spaces and cross check the floor plan itself. That would be a definite, definite physical thing. In older homes, Something I've come against multiple times has been that the house actually requires re-stumping. So that what that means is what the house sits on, which is stumps, are not stable enough to support the house long term. They need to be reinforced. And that can be a very expensive job and something you're going to have to factor in once you've purchased the home. So a way to test does a property need re-stumping? And this is not um, building advice, FYI, but a good way to test is do a little jump um, in the house and just see what moves um some houses I've jumped in like the whole thing's rattled and you're like oh my goodness this is like near falling down yeah um or another thing you could do is um carry either a marble or a coin with you and put it in a corner of the house and see if it rolls because the house may be on a lean particularly old houses with floorboards and things like that um check if the surface is level um yeah I might tell you that it's not level but it's always good to check with a marble or a coin Oh, that's amazing. I would never have thought of that. And then you talked about um, checking that, you know, obviously the floor's level and that it's all secure. What kind of checks would a first home buyer be looking to have done before they commit to buying the property? When you're going for a property, so obviously two ways of buying, private sale or auction. When you go to auction, you don't, there's no conditions. So if you you need to know everything about that property before you raise your hand, which most importantly means a building and pest inspection. A building and pest inspection, although quite high level at times, can certainly alert you to problems that you need to factor in if you are to purchase that home, such as re-stumping. Maybe there is moisture in the bathrooms that you need to uh, re-waterproof those areas. That's a common one. Maybe the ducted heating is not, the unit's not working and needs to be um, re-serviced. There's a lot of things that they'll pick up for you and I would strongly recommend that you get them done, um, particularly before you go to bid. If you're making an offer, you can have subject to a building and pest. Always an interesting debate whether to have um, an offer subject to building and pest or outlay the money of a building and pest first to discover what's wrong and make your offer based on that. That's Mm -hmm. a really interesting debate. Um, 
And I think it depends on the property and depends how much you think is wrong with it. But generally speaking, we put subject to building a pest on, on a private sale and definitely would invest in that. Um, anything external to that, I would say maybe looking at getting someone through to do a quote of renovation costs, if that's what you're looking to do. Um, most companies will do them free of charge or maybe you might be 200 bucks to find out what it's going to cost you. Um, but yeah, they're probably the two key ones that I would um, carry out before you commit to buy. Are there people that have hesitations around paying to get these pest inspections done or any of these checks done if there is no guarantee that they will get the property? Like, is there a risk, for example, that you get a pest inspection done and the seller sells to someone else in that time? Yeah, exactly. It it is a risk, definitely. Um, So, which is why sometimes we'll opt to put our offer in subject to. So, you know, at least if your offer's been accepted, then you can afford the outlay afterwards. If it's Mm -hmm. going to auction, there's every chance someone else has also conducted a building and pest. And I've always been pro, you know, trying to minimise costs. So you can actually split costs with another party. You're both going to get the same information anyway, which doesn't put you at a disadvantage or an advantage over someone else. And instead of $600, it might only cost you $300 and you're minimising the the outlay because it can. It, it adds up quite quickly. I've had clients who have done two building and pests and still haven't yet bought. Um, so that's, you know, $1,200 mm-hmm. unfortunately. But in hindsight, you know, you also need to be careful that you know everything about the property before you commit to buy. Yeah, it's a small amount to spend to potentially save hundreds of thousands of dollars on a bad property at the end of the day. So if someone's looking to maybe buy their first home in the next 12 months, is there anything else that we haven't mentioned that you would give these people as some advice? I think generally doing your research as to understanding the market. So, Understanding what a property is asking for in price, you know, some states have ranges of the price or they have a fixed price. Some you have to call up the agent and ask. It just says contact agent, which is really frustrating. Um, But keep a spreadsheet, even if you're not ready to buy just yet. Um, If you do have some time on a Saturday to go out to a few inspections, write your notes down on what you thought the quality of the property was like find the range or the asking price and then do a predictor of what you think it's going to sell for and monitor it. So I always encourage people to make this spreadsheet and have work out the gap between what you thought it was going to sell for versus what it does sell for. And if that's a significant gap um, in the positive in that you've underestimated how much it was going to sell for, you might need to readjust your expectations of what your money can buy and you would be better to know that before you get pre-approval then to get pre-approval, take three months to find out that your budget's unrealistic and then have to apply again and go back from scratch. So save yourself some time and money by getting out there earlier and commencing your research phase ahead of actually purchasing. That's really good advice. Love it. So everything we've talked about today, that's a lot to consider. And I imagine there are people out there who are thinking, how am I going to do all this by myself? If someone is wanting to consider getting a buyer's agent, obviously they can head to sort your money out and um, click on the link to get in contact. Um, But just generally, how does someone go about finding a buyer's agent? Is it just something you Google? Um, What are the costs associated with something like that? Yeah, it's interesting. There's not really a portal as such to find all the advocates. Um, But yeah, Googling the, you know, buyer's agent or buyer's advocate with your area would probably be a great start. Um, And then things to look out for would be um, how they operate and how they charge. So 
I personally charge a fixed fee regardless of someone's purchase price. And the reason that I and many others do it that way is number one, we're not driven by how much money you spend. Uh, And number two, all clients we have on board are treated as equal because they're all paying us the same. Um, The only time that varies is when it's a very particular property that's going to take a fair bit of work. But um, when you're, you know, interviewing advocates to see who's the best fit for you, Go. F- I would opt for someone who's fixed fee and not a percentage fee. Percentage fee is very much a conflict of interest. And I'd also look for people who have bought a property similar to you or deal with clients who are similar to your situation um, so that they are relatable and understand what you're after. Um, because some just focus on investment, some just focus on home buying, some just focus on five suburbs and that's it. So be asking the questions of their recent purchases and um, the way in which they operate with their fee structure, probably the top two ones to consider. Perfect. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for coming on. This has been really, really informative and I think people are going to find this really, really helpful. Um, If people want to follow you on social media and get an idea of what you're up to, where can they find you? Definitely. I'm very active on my Instagram, very passionate about um, telling everyone about property on there. So uh, (laughs) if you're up for that, um, Insta was just Emily underscore Wallace underscore BA, probably the most relevant one to the listeners of of the show. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, but probably not as informative as as my Instagram. So yeah, happy to have, have people follow there. Amazing. Well, thank you again, Emily. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Certainly will. Thanks for today. If you enjoyed today's episode and you're keen to chat with someone about your financial situation, head to www.sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help and we can connect you. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.